Our third subject is the atheism of the early church. The word atheism in quotes. The atheism of the early church. We have seen in previous sessions that the early church faced a real battle with the Roman Empire. The issue was licensure, regulation, taxation, and control. Rome was ready to tolerate any and all religions provided they were licit, that is, regulated and controlled. Christianity was very early and steadily charged with being an atheistic cult. Rome hated atheism as a subversive force. Now, we cannot understand the charge of atheism unless we consider certain factors. Dostoevsky once said, if there is no God, everything is permitted. A very logical, a very sensible conclusion. Rome felt the same way. People who did not believe in God were dangerous because there was no moral restraint upon them. And because the Christians in their eyes were atheists, they were ready to suspect them and to believe they were guilty of incest and cannibalism. Previously, they had said the same thing about Jews, that the Jews were atheists. An atheist, they held, will do anything. What shall we say about this charge? How shall we understand it? Was it merely slander? I don't think that's being fair to Rome because they were not trying to slander the Christians. They were trying to fit Christianity in what, into what they understood as religion and what they understood atheism to be. Justin Martyr said concerning that charge of atheism, and I quote, And we confess that we are atheists so far as gods of this sort, that is, of the pagans, are concerned, but not with respect to the most true God, the Father of righteousness and temperance and the other virtues, who is free from all impurity, unquote. One of the cynics, the philosopher Crescens, had accused the Christians also of being atheists. And Justin, in answering Crescens, said, and I quote, I too, therefore, expect to be plotted against and fixed to the stake by some of those I have named, or perhaps by Crescens, that lover of bravado and boasting. For the man is not worthy of the name of philosopher who publicly bears witness against us in matters which he does not understand, saying that the Christians are atheists and impious, and doing so to win favor with the deluded mob and to please them. 
For if he assails us without having read the teachings of Christ, he is thoroughly depraved. And far worse than the illiterate who often refrain from discussing or bearing false witness about matters they do not understand. Or, if he has read them and does not understand the majesty which is in them, or understanding, acts thus that he may not be suspected of being such a, that is, a Christian, he is far more base and thoroughly depraved, being conquered by illiberal and unreasonable opinion and fear, unquote. Now this is a very interesting quote. Of all people, we would expect a cynic philosopher to be the last one to charge Christians with being atheistic, of being impious. Well, we can understand that second aspect of the charge because piety in the Roman Empire meant submission to the state. A pious Roman was a man devoted to and obedient always to the Roman state. Christians felt that theirs was a true and a higher piety, but to the Romans they lacked piety. And the Greeks felt the same way about the Christians. Clement of Alexandria tried to deal with the same charge of atheism. And he declared, and I quote, He then who is persuaded that God is omnipotent and has learned the divine mysteries from his only begotten Son, how can he be an atheist? For he is an atheist who thinks that God does not exist. And he is superstitious and who dreads the demons, who deifies all things, both wood and stone, and reduces to bondage spirit and man who possesses the life of reason. Unquote. Now Clement redefined atheism to give it a Christian content, which it did not previously have. What was atheism to the Greeks and the Romans? Well, we find that very clearly in Eusebius, the church historian, who gives us a document, a record of an interrogation by Aemilianus, the deputy prefect, a Roman, of a group of Christians. One of the Christians, Dionysius, reported the matter in a letter to Hermanon. And we have, therefore, an eyewitness record of the interrogation shortly after it occurred. I quote, Dionysius Faustus Maximus Marcellus and Chiremen being arraigned, Emilianus the prefect said, I have reasoned verbally with you concerning the clemency which our rulers have shown to you. For they have given you the opportunity to save yourselves. If you will turn to that which is according to nature and worship the gods that preserve the empire and forget those that are contrary to nature. What then do you say to this? For I do not think 
that you will be ungrateful for their kindness since they would turn you to a better course. Dionysius replied, Not all people worship all gods, but each one those whom he approves. We therefore reverence and worship the one God, the maker of all, who hath given the empire to the divinely favored and august Valerian and Gallianus, and we pray to him continually for their empire, that it may remain unshaken. Aemilianus, the prefect, said to them, But who forbids you to worship him if he is a god, together with those who are gods by nature? For ye have been commanded to reverence the gods, the gods whom all know. Dionysius answered, We worship no other. Aemilianus the prefect said to them, I see that you are at once ungrateful and insensible to the kindness of our sovereigns. Wherefore ye shall not remain in this city, but ye shall be sent to a place called Sephro. For I have chosen this place at the command of our sovereigns, and it shall by no means be permitted to you or any others either to hold assemblies or to enter into the so-called cemeteries. But if any one shall be seen without the place which I have commanded or be found in any assembly, he will bring peril on himself. For suitable punishment shall not fail. Go, therefore, where ye have been ordered. Unquote. One thing about this citation which is interesting, we see here clearly the totalitarian mentality. Aemilianus feels that he is being gracious in allowing the Christians to submit to his demands. It's the kind of graciousness that I have seen over and over again in one state and federal court after another. Do what we say, and that's being reasonable. And we're so gracious that we give you an opportunity to obey us. But more important, Aemilianus tells these Christians what atheism meant to Rome. It was the refusal to worship the gods of nature, that is, natural forces. His point was that the Christian idea of God was contrary to nature. And it is here that we come to the focal point. For paganism, divinity was an inherent power in nature. This inherent power manifests itself in great men, they said, but supremely in the state. In the state, the men of the society, the rulers, the heroes, realize themselves. They become gods. A stateless man was for them no man at all, and a stateless god was no god. A religion sought to express itself in the life of a state. Thus, to Emilianus, atheism was to disbelieve in the natural gods, the forces of nature, and to believe in a supernatural God. 
By definition, there could be no such God. Therefore, to profess such a thing was to be perverse. It was to be contrary. It was to be an atheist. You denied the power of the God in nature, the inherent force in nature. Now, it's very clear that atheism is a relative term. For us, the humanist is an atheist, but the humanist believes that men are their own gods. He does believe in a god himself. The statists are not atheists. They believe the state is God walking on earth, Allah Hegel. And all others are fools. They believe in nothing, in superstition. This was the attitude of the Romans. These foolish Christians are believing in a non-existent God, in a non-existent and dead Jesus. And all this is a form of subversion. They are atheists. And all that they profess is a disguise, a mask for their atheism. power, a God, a force in the universe, anything worthy to be worshipped, had to be inherent in nature. <coughs> Thus, Rome saw Christianity as an enemy to all it stood for. Because for Rome, the deity in nature came to focus in the Roman Empire. Now, we have the same conflict today. John Dewey, in his book, A Common Faith, opposed totally Christianity as illegitimate, not permissible in a democracy. Why? Because it did not believe in the people. It did not believe in anything that was democratic. It believed in a Heaven and a hell, very anti-democratic, and right and wrong, and passing and failing. And the sheep and the goats, God and the devil, totally anti-democratic. And so he said, the two are not compatible. For him, with his faith in the great community, Christianity was a form of atheism, a belief in nothing. And so today, the Christians, although they are not called atheists, what they believe is held to be superstitious. In the creationist trial in Louisiana, the issue raised by the scientists was that these people believe in myths, in superstition. They didn't charge them with being atheists, but the Romans did. They said they believe in superstitions, in myths, in nothingness. They are atheists. For them, then, the authority of the state is the ultimate and the natural order. It is God walking on earth. And for my modern man, the same is true. Justin Martyr and Clement of Alexandria and others like them 
charged Crescens and other doubters with not knowing the Bible. But some of them did. It only confirmed their belief in the atheism of the Christians. Because they said, that's not a faith, that's a superstition. They're believing in nothing. For them, the only moral force tenable for man was fear of the state. Their attitude was, if you believe in Rome, then you believe in the power of Rome to enforce morality, and the fear of the state will bring law and order among men. But, if you believe in a God who is supposedly out there in the heavens, you're an atheist. You're not believing in anything. And what's to keep people then believing in a distant God who doesn't have a police force around from cannibalism and atheism? And so it was. They said, the Christians are atheists. They believe in nothing. Therefore, they must be practicing incest and cannibalism. It makes sense, doesn't it? If you don't believe in the power of the state, if you're against the policeman on the corner, it's because you want to do everything that an evil imagination can think of. They held that no remote, unnatural, supernatural God could restrain man. To deny the natural order and the state as God was for them atheism. The battle is the same today. The language of the enemy is not always as honest as it was in the days of Rome. But for Caesar today as then, the Christian is the enemy of public order, and therefore war is waged against him. Are there any questions now about any of these three lessons this evening? Yes, John. Uh, in Rome, uh, I'm trying to work out here the, the, the thing that uh, I think there's just an example of it. And I'm just, uh, when Van Til when talks about man becoming... Uh, progressively epistemologically self-conscious. Mm-hmm. It seems to me like that the that the difference between ancient Rome and modern America in terms of humanism and the Roman Empire is that, uh, that it seems to me as if that's that's being established in that historical what Van Til is saying is being established in that historical process. The only difference is in ancient Rome they credited the gods. Mm-hmm. With certain powers, and 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 then the, through the state, but now they've eliminated the gods, and now it's just the state. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder, is, is am I way off base there, or is that no? It's the same thing with different terminology. It's a naturalistic faith. But uh, is that an example of what he means when he talks about? Uh, uh, nations and, and civilization becoming epistemologically self-conscious? Yes. We're refining the issues and becoming more honestly 
humanistic, and naturalistic. Any other questions? Yes. You talk about uh, the way humanists use the word for people. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Bible, uh, at least in our translation, uses uh, the people in the in a variety of senses, one is as members of a, of a family, of a, of a nation. And I'm wondering if, uh, <clears throat> if it might be better to say, instead of saying there's no such thing as the people, that the humanist attempt to use the phrase the people is the attempt to incorporate everybody into their family. Uh, the biblical word people uh, or peoples usually is goyim, uh, the nations, literally. So it has reference to legal entities. It doesn't have reference uh, in the humanistic sense to the, uh, the citizens and, and individuals collectively as somehow embodied in a general will of which the speaker is the representative and the voice. So, it's a Logos doctrine. It is a word. The word is made flesh in the state. And the word is made flesh in themselves. So, they speak as the people. Yes? Uh, again, on, on this people, the communists claim to be speaking for the people. They want power to the people. Yes. But then they define the people as the members of the communist party. Yes. So, so maybe the humanists have a different definition of people than what we think of. Well, for the Marxists, the dictatorship of the proletariat is the infallible voice of the people. For the humanists, the, some of them, it's the democratic consensus, which is the expression of the general will and the intellectual, the philosopher kings of the society. So they speak for the people because they somehow incarnate the people with their wisdom. But in either case, it's a kind of incarnation of the people in a class, a party, or in an elite philosophical group. Yes? That's uh, Vox Populi and Vox Dei. Yes, Vox Populi, Vox Dei. The voice of the people is the voice of God, which is a, a philosophy that Rousseau developed, although the proverb goes back to ancient Rome. Yes. Uh, question to, uh, regarding the, the uh, Emilianus uh, referring to the gods of nature, uh, and, and we were saying that that was the natural forces, yes. and, and they were worshipping I assume uh, storms and expressions of, of nature of that kind. But but the question is, the, we know the Romans also uh, worshipped uh, Zeus and Neptune and gods that they made idols to and built temples to worship them in. Yes. Was, was it not those gods? The uh, gods of the Greeks and the Romans like Zeus and uh, Athena and Mars and so on were really deified persons. Uh, In uh, the case of uh, Zeus, the Greeks actually uh, 
could tell you and uh, boasted that, well, he was born in this city, he lived here, and he died here. In other words, he was a divinized man. And this was true of all the other gods and the goddesses. They believed that men could incarnate the power in nature and become gods. So it was the Roman Senate, for example, that proclaimed who was a god. They weighed the matter and they said such and such a, an emperor really incarnated these forces in a tremendous way and therefore he is a god. Well, uh, as a result, what these gods represented was nature coming to focus in something. Now, it wasn't necessarily the storms or the sun as much as the forces behind them. And reason, for example, was uh, a, a key aspect of the divine natural force. And if you live the life of reason, you live the life of divinity. And power and force like a great hero in battle, also was a manifestation of that divinity in nature coming to focus in a man. This is the way they viewed it. Yes. Well, then their particular view uh, of deity would uh, would have no room for any any concept of supernaturalism. Is that true? Right. The supernatural oh. was... Yeah. Totally materialistic, then. Totally, and their position was totally naturalistic, yes. Now, we would tend to think that because their heroes and their gods and goddesses did certain things that to us look miraculous, that uh, they were anti-naturalistic and supernaturalistic in their opinion. But they didn't see it that way. It was just that their view of what constituted the naturalistic forces was not as refined as that of, say, the modern scientist. Yes? How is interested in knowing why you may think that in uh, Calvin's Institutes, Calvin said that uh, the procession of the Holy Spirit wasn't important and it was a big waste of time to argument over it. Can you give us an understanding on that statement? I don't recall his statement, so I couldn't comment on it without rereading it. Mm -hmm. Well, he certainly stressed the doctrine and the procession in other ways. It could be he was just striking at a particular expression of it. I don't know. With regard to uh, the lecture on process or procession, evolution is referred to by the name process. Yes. And this is a process worldview. Yes. And the whole Very point definitely. and the whole point of the process is the apotheosis or deification of man. Yeah, exactly. And uh, Arthur Lovejoy in his book uh, The Great Chain of Being talks about the temporalizing of the chain of being in the modern times. Mm -hmm. And uh, an interesting footnote to that is that uh, we have a friend who's doing doctoral studies at Cambridge, and he was told by his uh, reader that uh, process theology and liberation theology were O-U-T out, 
these days, and that what was very in, according to this man and Norman Pittenger, was the great chain of being. Mm-hmm. So they're, they, they've gone beyond process, and they are now talking about their deity. Yes. So it's complete. Yes. What is the theology behind the procession where you find a jogathon of, uh, of a thousand people in San Francisco going from one side of the, the bay to the other? Is, is there, is there a, um, a concept of this parade or procession in the minds of the people? Uh, the commuters, you mean? Uh, Once a year they, in San Francisco they have a, a big... Uh, a marathon jog across San Francisco. Oh, no, that's different. That's ath- a- a- athletic. Uh, no. No. Not to my knowledge. Any other questions or comments? Yes. Well, uh, the wedding procession is a church processional because... Uh, it's a processional to the altar or the pulpit or the front of the church to seek the blessing of God upon a relationship. And therefore, it celebrates an event which is blessed by God since the Garden of Eden and in which they seek a special blessing upon themselves individually in the institution of marriage. Any other questions or comments? Well, if not, let us bow our heads in prayer. Our Lord and our God, we give thanks unto Thee that as we face the powers of darkness, of humanistic statism and unbelief, we have the blessed assurance that ours is the victory in Jesus Christ. We thank Thee for the procession of power from Thee and from the Son unto us by the Holy Spirit, whereby we are made more than conquerors, are given the blessed assurance that Thou wilt never leave us nor forsake us, so that we may boldly say, I shall not fear what man may do unto me. Make us victorious in the days ahead and make us effectual in thy kingdom. Now, Lord, give us traveling mercies on our homeward way, a blessed night's rest, and joy always in thy service. In Jesus' name, amen.